cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012. Now, even though Pirate Christian Radio turned four years old on Saturday, Fighting for the Faith turns five today. We didn't go into full-time production until PCR launched, but we began doing pilot programs of Fighting for the Faith on starting July 3rd the year before. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. The general premise here is that God's Word is true and that because of our sinful and fallen nature, because each and every one of us uh, is born by nature, dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God, that even if when you're brought to faith, you still struggle with your sinful nature. And so the sinful nature acts out in many different ways. You can almost say in ten different directions, if you would. Look at the Ten Commandments. And the primary root of all of that is is our lack of love, lack of fear, lack of trust, lack of belief in the one true God. In fact, it's not it's not just an absence of, there's also an act of hostility on the part of our sinful nature about anything that has to pertain to God. And um, if you think that that's just religious truth, that's not just that. Um, when you look at uh, look at the world out there, people are well have a tendency to reject anything that binds them and locks them down. And so, uh, you know, I, I I remember joking about the whole new math movement when I was uh, you know when I was a lot younger. Uh, this was something that kind of started back in the 1990s. And I'm thinking, you know, what is this movement for kinder and gentler math? Well, as I've grown older, I've come to realize that um, even the very concept of 2 plus 2 equals 4 is too constrictive and binding on sinful fallen humanity that even that has got to be blurred 
um, attacked, deconstructed, and things like that. And so, I mean, it's when when you've made yourself into your own god, all truth from the one true God. Um, you know, you be well. Your sinful nature goes after it in one way or another. Now, that's not necessarily. You know, it it shows up in different ways in different human beings. Not everybody's sinful nature expresses itself in exactly the same way, but you can see different trends. And so, one of the major trends is uh, as it pertains to idolatry, the sin of idolatry, all false doc- doctrine is a form of idolatry. It's a rejecting of what God has revealed about himself, a, a rejecting of what God has revealed regarding what is truth, what is to be embraced and uh, coveted uh, or cherished, and what is to be rejected and rebuked. Um, and uh, you know, here in the United States of America, we have all of this freedom we have all of this freedom granted to us, uh, freedom of conscience and, and you know freedom of belief and, and all that type of stuff. And so as a result of it, in the United States, you know, and by the way, I'm not advocating for a theocracy. I'm just describing a symptom here. In the United States, people approach Christianity with basically the idea of, well, whatever I believe regarding how God is or what it, he isn't, whatever I think is reasonable regarding what you know, what is to be embraced in Christianity and what's to be rejected, that must be true. Um, people are basically cobbling together their own spirituality, their own religion, and calling it Christianity when it isn't. And so this program challenges those ideas and basically says, listen, okay, doesn't matter what you believe, what matters is what God has revealed. And what if we can't draw a straight line from us back through the centuries and millennia of Christian history and belief back to the Bible regarding what is to believe to be believed taught and confessed it's got to be rejected so the idea is is that we're we're not try- it, it, this is almost a a project in repristination uh, reformation in the church never ends and the reason why and, and it's it's something you, you know bemoaning doesn't make any sense the it, it reformation in the church never ceases because sinful human beings um fill the churches me included, you included, and so you know what happens is is that different um, in different eras the church makes different mistakes. The mistake that the church collectively right now is making on in mass is not the mistake that it's made in the past. It's a complete. It's a it's a new set of mistakes, a new set of errors, if you would, and it has pretty serious repercussions. Although a lot of the same things are, you know, a lot of the the strains of the heresies that we're fa- facing go all the way back to ancient times. But the point is this, is that right now we live in a time when it is politically incorrect, impolite, um, and intolerable for people to, well, stop and take what God has said and compare it to what people are saying about God and say, wait a second, that person is contradicting God's word. When you do that, you run the risk of being attacked viciously, of being called a maternal basement living opinion giver, of being a malcontent, a problem in the church, a troubler of God's people, you know, things like that. Um, and yet, there, there, the uh, 
the critique stands. If somebody, no matter how influential, no matter how large their church, no matter how many books they've sold, is saying things that are contrary to Scripture, they're wrong. And the church is not to embrace them, but the church is to reject them. But before the church can know to reject them, they must get back into the book. They must get back into Scripture and reading it the way God intended it to be read, and that is as the oracles of God, inspired by God, true, and to be believed, not, not attacked and demeaned. And so when you come across a difficult passage that contradicts what you believe uh, and your sensibilities, there is a good chance your sensibilities are completely wrong. And what's called for is not for you to attack the Bible and come up with all these clever different ways in which you can say, well, I don't have to believe what the Bible says here because if we just understand this philosophical principle here or this little historical tidbit there, then we can know that it doesn't really mean that, even though there's other passages all over the place that say the same thing, but we could just throw them all out because of this particular clever philosophical argument that I came up with. You understand what I'm saying? Um, that's when confronted with the uh, biblical truth. It's fascinating to watch what people do. Um, you know, uh, repent is the thing that Scripture calls us to do. Repent because we're believing in false doctrine and are guilty of the sin of idolatry, not loving God with our whole heart and rejecting what is revealed about Himself. That's ultimately what's uh, what is called for. And the good news is is that those are sins that Christ died for, and so. Um, you know, I know that uh, there many of you who have listened to Fighting for the Faith over the years, um, you know, you've you were in churches where you were not being taught the truth, and even what you believed was fuzzy, blurry, or, or or just flat out off. And now you have found yourself in churches where you're hearing the gospel, God's word rightly preached, and uh, and from time to time, I get emails from people who who have true remorse over what it is that they at one point believed. And that's godly remorse. That is true godly sorrow. And the good news is that is that you're forgiven. Christ has died for that. Anyway, so I, all of this is just you know I, I you know at the pro- top of the program I always try to give a little bit of a monologue, kind of getting our bearings in here. And and one of the recurring things we need to do is remind people why this program exists, why I do what I do, and it's not it is not to stir the pot for the sake of stirring the pot although the pot must be stirred. It's to challenge what's in the pot and say that doesn't belong here and provide a biblical you know, backing you know, for that claim. Now, I could be wrong. And if you would like to say, Rosebro, you're wrong, I get those emails from time to time. Back up your claim with Scripture. Make your point with God's Word. Let's wrestle with the text together if you disagree with me. And uh, you know, that's a godly thing to do. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, First and foremost, I'm going to talk about what the second leg of our summer bake sale is going to be to help us get through the lean, mean, (laughs) financially, you know, thin uh, summer months. It's just a normal thing here at Fighting for the Faith. It's just saying, I I don't know how to explain it. It just comes every single summer when summer comes along. Anyway, so we've come up with a, a clever way of attacking this, and it appears to be helping. So... Um, I'm very thankful about that, but we'll talk about uh, leg two of the bake sale today. 
Um, I've got email that I got to read. I got a Patricia King update. Um, and then I got a TD Jakes update that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on second half of the first hour today that uh, we, wow. He was recently on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. I mean, there was nothing Christian about any of this stuff that he said. I mean, the, I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, you, you just got to hear it to believe it. And then for our sermon review today, we're going to be uh, going to Derby, Kansas, uh, to uh, l- listen to a sermon from Aviator Church uh, from a pastor by the name of Joe Boyd. I've met Joe, by the way. I met Joe at one of the New Spring Leadership Conferences, and uh, <laughs> interesting conversation because I had reviewed. It's been a while since I've reviewed a, a sermon by Joe Boyd, but I chose this one because I think it, it, it's perfect example of uh, of a sermon that is in direct rebellion uh, to God's word. God's word specifically commands pastors to preach the word. Uh, Joe ain't not, he does not succeed in his uh, biblical mandate here. And by the way, that would mean he's sinning. So every time a pastor gets up and he doesn't do his job, preach the word, he's in rebellion to God. I mean, that's as much a sin as uh, lying, cheating, adultery, coveting, you know, not uh, honoring your parents. I mean, that you understand what I'm saying. Anyway, so we're going to that's what we're going to do for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And you should know that this this episode of Fighting for the Faith is going to be the final episode f- until I get back from my vacation and Lord willing I come back alive from my vacation. So you, you got to understand this. I ca- I can't promise I'm going to be alive tomorrow. So, but I can I can tell you this that uh, if at the end of my vacation I haven't successfully blown myself up, uh you cuz you know that's the thing about vacations is is that you do things you don't normally do. <laughs> I mean, I've got this wonderful routine. I love my job. Every day I wake up about the same time, do pretty much the same thing day after day after day. It's a wonderful routine. But see, then summer vacation comes and you spend time with the family doing things you don't normally do. And, and so if I successfully survive my summer vacation and don't blow myself up, don't drown myself, uh, you know, or something like that, um, then if I, you know, Lord willing, I return in a, in a week and a half, then good news is, is that we'll continue <laughs> right where we left off. It's just, yeah, anyway, you know, that's the thing is I can't promise I'm going to be here tomorrow. Neither can you. So, you know, every day is a gift. And, you know, it's like I don't worry about what tomorrow's going to bring. I haven't been given tomorrow. I've been given today. You know, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so uh, let's, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Again, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers do help enhance the listener experience. Um, and uh, and you know what? I cons- oh, considering the fact that we got a Patricia King update, I do think that our warning is in order today. Warning: Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities: operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Okay. 
So with that warning, we're going to dive into the program. Here we go. Just first off, first off is we're going to talk a little bit about the second leg of the bake sale. I'm getting a lot of questions about it because the first half of it uh, with the bracelets that my mother-in-law made, um, well, you know, unless your wife listens to Fighting for the Faith, it definitely is um, uh, <laughs> a, a, something that's designed for the women. Well, I promise something more along the lines of something for the men, and I can announce it today. In fact, what I'll do over my vacation, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, I'll send out um, uh, you know, photographs or graphics of what it is that we're going to be offering here. But uh, when I return, should I return, Lord willing, if I don't blow myself up, um, then what we intend to do is we're going to be selling T-shirts uh, to uh, help raise the funds necessary to make it through the remainder of the summer. And uh, there's a pastor in Arkansas who does uh, who is you know bivocational and uh, he runs a t-shirt uh you know a screen printing business and uh, he donated the shirts and the design for us and uh, I will uh, you know preview that in you know in the days ahead just keep an eye on me during a vacation on my uh, Facebook and Twitter I'm not going to stop tweeting or facebooking during that time and uh, and if you still have stories that you think I should cover when I get back if I don't blow myself up <laughs> Just yeah, I listen. You know, anything can happen. But uh, but the point is, is that uh, you know, please continue to send me those links on uh, Facebook and Twitter. So watch the feed there, and then when we get back from vacation, um, then we will uh, we will begin to make those available for you to purchase. In fact, um, you know, anyway, you you get what I'm saying. In fact, what I want to do is interview the pastor who made the shirts and donated the shirts to us on Fighting for the Faith so that you know who he is. And if you uh, have the opportunity to uh, use his services, uh, you know, for your own T-shirt screen printing needs, that would um, be a way for him to pick up some extra business because he donated the T-shirts and the design and and the work uh, for us so that we can... Uh, maximize uh, what we make in order to raise money for the the next half of the summer. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, next thing here, I said we got some email. I want to get into this. bits of email I want to get to. One is a comment on my Facebook wall. Another is an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Okay, the first bit of email is, like I said, this is uh, from my Facebook wall. Steve uh, from uh, Santa Rosa, California. Steve from Santa Rosa, California. Commenting on the segment we did yesterday on Fighting for the Faith with uh, Stephen Furtick taking Genesis 22, literally saying that uh, it's a type and shadow of the gospel, but then saying he doesn't have time to really do it justice, so he spends the rest of the sermon talking about himself. Steve writes, he says, How in the world did Stephen Furtick take that passage meant to teach us about God's sacrifice for us and turn it into what we need to sacrifice for God, which is law? Uh, You know, Steve, that is a fantastic and insightful question because, I mean, you really kind of get into the heart of the, the biblical distinction of law and gospel. And um, what I find fascinating is is that um, I'm a confessional Lutheran, 
And uh, from time to time, we get you know we Lutherans get you know shots taken. You know we get we take incoming flack, uh, friendly fire from other Christians with the basic concept of, yeah, you're, that Lutheran distinction between law and gospel. That's a that's a Lutheran thing. That's not a biblical thing. And I would say au contraire. In fact, the proper understanding of law and gospel really finds its origin not in the New Testament but in the Old Testament. And you really clearly see it really being teased out in it in, in you know, rough hewn blocks, if you would, in the story of Abraham, um, where Abraham fifteen, Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's the very point that's the very passage that the Apostle Paul keys in on in the in the book of Romans and and the book of Galatians, which are the two books where you get the finer theological the, uh, tuning on the proper distinction of long gospel. But let me let me so let me add that because you you point in fact let me reread your question. I'm going to add one word to it. How in the world did Stephen Furtick take that passage, Genesis 22, meant to teach us about God's sacrifice for us, gospel, and turn it into what we need to sacrifice for God, law? How can these people ever have any peace in their life? How can their consciences ever give them any rest under this type of preaching? Why would they sit there week after week and have this enormous amount of guilt heaped upon them when they should be having their consciences cleansed by the reminder of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a dishonoring thing to do with the precious word of our gracious God. Anathema, Steve says. Great, great point. And you've got it. And see, that's the thing. The law always demands and is never satisfied, ever. That's the nature of God's law. It always demands from us, and we can never check it off as accomplished or completed, ever, okay? Um, so every day, I mean, if you were to take just the two, you know, the two rough cut uh, primary uh, categories of the of the law, love God, love neighbor, okay? And if you were to put it down as a to-do on your to-do list, would you be able to check it off at the end of the day? No, you wouldn't. Number one, you didn't do it completely. Number two, you sinned and didn't actually, you actually, there's things that you did that were contrary to loving God and loving neighbor. But on top of it, even if you were to somehow figure out a way to make it through the whole day, the next day, the moment you open your eyes, you are expected to do, continue doing. God's law is never satisfied. And so the reality, Steve, is that when somebody attends a church like Stephen Furtick's church, where he refuses, and that's the best way to put it, he rebelliously refuses to preach Christ from the biblical text, instead preaches himself, and he tur- and basically turns it upside down and inside out, so a gospel passage becomes a law passage, there is no peace for the people in those churches. In fact, it's just a matter of time before kind of one of two primary things happens or a third, which is kind of a, you know, a, a rarer instance happens. But so the normal result of this kind of preaching is going to do uh, several different things, but kind of three things in particular. Two of them are, are, we get a lot of that, but 
Uh, the one is is that people are going to basically deceive themselves into believing that they're pulling it off, and they become very self-righteous in how they view themselves and they view others. And so they always see themselves as kind of this in the strata above. Yeah, you know, I'm really doing this. I'm really sacrificing for God. I'm climbing the ladder and experiencing the blessed life, things like that, right? And then, you know, of course I'm more blessed than that other person because that other person isn't nearly as audacious in their faith as I am. You, you see the problem there? So one, so that's one big thing that goes on is, is that people become a form of Pharisees. And I'm not playing the Pharisee card. That's exactly what the, the Pharisees were historically and biblically. Okay, Second group. Second group is the group who despairs. And uh, you know, when you think of Mormonism, you talk about Jack Mormons. These are people who basically say, I'm not going to pull it off. I can't pull it off. I, if I, I'm honest with myself, it doesn't work. And so these are folks who despair and uh, either end up leaving Christianity altogether They've been perfectly inoculated at that point against Christianity because they haven't really heard the gospel. Um, and um, you know, so they either leave or they stay, but they're mentally they're just te- checked out and going through the motions. And there's a lot of those types of folks because you can't continue to, you know, to th- you, there's no way to thrive under the withering preaching of law and no gospel. There's no way to thrive because God's law, even when it's watered down, it, in you know, it, it's still powerful enough to just basically burn the fa- you know the hair off your face and your head and everything else. I mean, there's just no way to tame God's law. Um, and then there's a third kind. There's a third group. And that is, is those who despair ultimately and um, run the risk of taking their own life because they become so depressed. Because uh, the, the, the logical conclusion is, is that I'm not doing this. Therefore, God is angry at me. God doesn't love me. And the solution is is that I might as well just end my life and get it over with and go to hell. That's a real danger in these types of churches. And um, well, and there's another subcurrent to all of this. When you preach all law and no gospel, you literally <clears throat> the Bible describes this. Um, you awaken sin within you. And so what happens is is that you awaken the very sinful desires that the law preaches against. And you, the only way to quell that is with the gospel, but the gospel is not being preached. And so this is a terrible, terrible situation for Stephen Furtick, for all of the people in his, in his congregation that are subjected to this man's Bible-twisting and heavy-handed law preaching. And, of course, he's at the top of the pyramid. Of course, he's done everything necessary to earn God's blessings and favor because, of course, Stephen Furtick is now the poster child for audacious faith, right? He is the one with the audacious faith. You want to be like him and experience the blessings that he has because he's successfully pulled it off. So notice he falls into the first category. So anyway, Steve, great comment on my Facebook wall, and thank you for the questions. And thank you for the uh, the uh, comments, too. They were fantastic. Okay, uh, second email from uh, across the pond from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Hanley Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes, uh, the subject is Mark Batterson, Jesus on Legends. <clears throat> Dear Chris, uh, quite apart from Mark Batterson, 
using a story that is not in the Bible as the basis of his book, The Circle Maker, he is woefully bad at interpreting the legend of Honi the Circle Maker as he is interpreting the Bible. The point of the story, whatever it may be, is certainly not that we have to draw a circle around our problems. Honi drew a circle around himself and then refused to get out of it unless God sent rain. Now, if we're going to make this as, as an example for us, uh, Batterson should be saying, God is waiting for you to draw a circle around yourself and then sit in it until God deals with your problem. Only he doesn't say that because that would be excessively silly. So the whole thing is just an exercise in smoke and mirrors, really. Poor old Honey is being used as a cover for an idea that is not ancient at all. Let us be clear, Batterson should not be using legends to teach anything, but the legend he chose does not teach what he wants us to believe that it teaches. So why does he use it? Because he knows that a Jewish legend is more likely to be received by a modern Western audience than one of the medieval legends of the saints. Never mind that this is exactly the same sort of thing. And so he is deliberately reversing the Reformation in order to make money, which is further reversing the Reformation, as Martin Luther could you know tell what? you. In the name of our great, uh, in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Great email, too. Okay. You know what? I'm going to throw in one more Facebook wall comment because, well, it's my last day before vacation. If I don't do it now, I won't be able to do it. So uh, another uh, Facebook uh, comment from uh, somebody who follows me on Facebook. His name is David, and he lives in Anderson, South Carolina. And this is in response to the uh, New Spring Take the Land video that I, well, I read the comments on it. I read well. I played the video and read the parts where there were words, and then let you hear um, Perry Noble make the claim regarding, uh, you know, you know, you gotta if you, twenty bucks, you need to make your biggest uh, contribution, whether it's twenty bucks or ten million, and um, and I, you know, yesterday I said that I think that uh, Perry Noble had declared war on the people of South Carolina. Well. David from uh, Anderson writes, he says, I live in South Carolina. More specifically, I live in Anderson. And I'd like to know where Perry Noble is getting his statistics from. There is no way that 85% of our state doesn't attend church. Maybe his complaint is really that 85% of our state doesn't attend his church. I think that's the problem. I just, uh, you know, I just traveled from Anderson to Myrtle Beach yesterday, and you have, uh, you have a hard time finding a city block in this state that doesn't have at least one church on it. Perry's problem is that although he likes to say that he doesn't have a problem with other churches, he thinks that his is the only right way to do it. If you don't go to New Spring and Anderson, well, then you don't go to church. That's why he keeps erecting these multi-million-dollar buildings. Uh, buildings slaps the New Spring logo on the front of them, puts and puts up a video screen. He was barely in the business five years ago before he decided he was going to hold an annual conference to teach other pastors to do it the way that he does it. <clears throat> so he's not interested in getting 85% to church. He's interested in getting them to New Spring. Every number has a name and every name has a dollar. It really is that simple. Um, Dave, thank you for the uh, uh, Facebook wall comment, and you know I think you're making a point, but I ended up doing a little bit of research, and I'm going to post this at uh, the Museum of Idolatry, and uh, what I found is is that um, this this figure that uh, New Spring 
put up in that video claiming that 85% of the people of South Carolina don't go to church. That is a bald face lie. I mean, it is an exaggeration that is it actually it, it, it is a gross misrepresentation and exaggeration. In fact, I did a little bit of uh, research on this and I found that uh, in the um, according to the Gallup website, the Gallup website that, um, you know, they, they keep stats on this. OK. And um, and so here, here we go. This is from a Gallup survey just from a couple of years ago. Top 10 states regarding church attendance. OK, so the top 10 at the you know, at the bottom of the list in the top 10 is Texas. 50 percent attend weekly or almost every week. Georgia, 51 percent. North Carolina, 53 percent. Arkansas, 53 percent. I'm mo- moving my way up from 10 to number one. Tennessee. 54%, Utah, 56%, Louisiana, 56%. South Carolina is the number three state in the whole country for church attendance, okay? And it's not 15%, as New Spring says. It's 56%. 56% of the people of South Carolina attend church Weekly or almost every week. Yet Newspring, in this pitch for millions of dollars, claims that 85% of the state of South Carolina does not attend church. Does not attend church. By the way, I'm going to put this up at the Museum of Idolatry uh, later today. The headline will read, New Spring's uh, Take the Land campaign grossly misrepresents church attendance stats in bid for millions. So, I mean, the, the, uh, in, according to the video that Newspring put out in the, the Take the Land video, the justification for why people need to give them tens of millions of dollars is because 85% of the state of South Carolina doesn't attend church. That is not only factually incorrect, it is gro- a gross misrepresentation of the truth. And, you know, here's the deal. Um, I have been covering Perry Noble for so long here at Fighting for the Faith, and even before I started doing radio, that I can't extend to him the benefit of the doubt. I don't believe for a second that this was just some administrative error in the video production of what's going on. In fact, uh, this egregious, egregious disconnect... Um, as far as I'm concerned, speaks volumes regarding the motives and the personal character and integrity of the leadership at New Spring Church. 85% of the state of South Carolina, you know, to, to make the claim that 85% of the state of South Carolina doesn't attend church would make South Carolina the least, you know, the least religious church, or not church, but state in the United States. So, yeah, it's I think there's something seriously going wrong here, and uh, I'll be doing what I can to draw attention to this <clears throat> statistical error on the part of Newspring, because, like I said, it speaks to the integrity and it speaks to the character of the leadership there at Newspring Church in their bid to make you know to basically get people cough up millions of dollars. They're not telling the truth about how many people attend church in the state of South Carolina. All right, looking at the time here, uh, yeah, let's do this. Moving along.
Talk about summer vacation. Um, have you ever, you know, taken trips to heaven? Apparently there's a gal by the name of Kat, Kerr, and uh, she's being interviewed by Patricia King. She apparently makes regular visits to heaven. You know, so if you're looking for a place to vacation this summer, um, this may be the place for you. So this is from uh, the uh, YouTube channel True Spirit Worship. So you can find this at youtube.com forward slash True Spirit Worship. It's an interview with uh, 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 with Kat Kerr and Patricia King on Revealing Heaven. See if you can make in heads or tails of this. Welcome to Everlasting Love. My name's Patricia King. I'm so excited about today's program because we're going to talk about heaven and we have a guest who's actually been there you know it is the promise of the father that he has given the blood of christ so that we would have access into this heavenly abode called heaven kat kerr it's wonderful to have you with us um, a, a friend of mine actually told me about you and about your numerous trips into heaven with with vivid encounters and i yes. thought oh this is going to be amazing to meet you, and it has been. So she's just like the prophet Isaiah. She's just like the Apostle Paul. Hmm, okay. <clears throat> Tell us more. Thank you so much for coming in. By the way, Patricia King, we've documented this over the course of this program that we've been broadcasting. Patricia King has made claims about going to heaven herself. Apparently she's spent time in the... Um, the heavenly wine cellar and has been, you know, been given, well, the ability by God to taste the great vintage wines that God keeps in his wine cellar. Yeah, this, just look it up in the archives. And for revealing what the Father has shown you. Now, you have authored uh, two books on revealing heaven. Yes. Uh, book one and book two. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading through those books, and it's fascinating about the revelations that you've received and the encounters that you have had in that realm of his glory with him. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could share with our viewers how this all began for you, because you have numerous, I mean, every single day you have your raptures into that realm. So so she goes to heaven on a daily basis. Apparently she commutes there, you know. How did it start? It, it actually kind of starts with the generations before me. My grandmother was um, had a seer anointing. She gave her life in the jungle. Mm, Bible doesn't exactly talk about that. Hmm. Was a Panama as a missionary. She had a real intimate relationship with Jesus. Had seen him many times. Had divine encounters. My father, the same thing. He really loved people. Wow. Loved God. And uh, angels would appear in his car, give him assignments from God. He was a very simple person, but. He always obeyed God and loved people. And I chose to walk on the same foundation. You can choose that. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, if you want to, you know, have angels show up and give you assignments in your car, you can choose that. You know, all you got to say, hey, God, you know, hey, you know, I'm all for that. You know, just sign me up. I'd like to sign up for the special angel assignment thingy. And, and plus, I'd like to commute to heaven on a regular basis. Apparently, just, all you got to do is choose it. Bible doesn't teach this, but okay. My encounter started very early in my life. How had, old were um, you when you had your first encounter? The very first one, well, when I was even really young girl, I knew when people were lying. I knew right. if things were lost. I would see where they were in the spirit and then wow. find them for people. So this was like, I really can't remember. I've known the Lord from the age of four. Wow. And so that's been my whole life. And so I was raised in, in the reality of a supernatural realm it's in just heaven. normal for you. It was you normal for me. Else. And I would only sleep four hours a night. So I had a lot of free time to spend time with him. And I did. 
And when I was 14, I had my first divine encounter. I was helping to raise 12 of my siblings, wow. which was not an easy job. So didn't always have time for fun. Right. And I remember one time I was walking with the Lord, just talking to him, will my life ever be different from this? Will I ever be able to do anything else? And he gave me an open vision of myself grown and I had the world on my shoulders. Wow. Hmm. Sounds important. Yeah. Kind of like Atlas. And I remember him laughing out loud and I went, am I going to have to take care of the whole world? And he said, you will impact the whole world. Wow. And then it was gone. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, Probably not for good. Yeah. And then from that time on, I had a lot of divine encounters with angelic beings. I knew the operations in the, in the realm of darkness also and would share it with some people. But I was kind of quiet back then. And then when I was 29, I was in a foreign country with my father on a mountaintop, just there to be with God. And the heavens opened for the first time. I saw stairways come down from heaven, angelic beings going back and forth wow. for the first time. Just like... <clears throat> Jacob, wow. I mean, she's a, she's like a biblical character in her own right. I mean, we need to tack her stories on to the end of our Bible. Probably not. I heard the music in heaven. God literally took his finger, drew a round rainbow, that the one that was like around his throne in the sky, and this portal opened, and the Lord came down and had communion with us. So it was wow. really significant. I mean, it Can wasn't I just ask? any... I mean, I mean, do you have like a, just a boring, ordinary, average Christian life? I mean, yeah, when was the last time you had... You see, you're probably just not up to snuff. I mean... You just haven't made the right decisions in order to have these kind of supernatural encounters. I mean, how sad for you that you don't have, well, the same spiritual aptitude as Cat Kerr does so that, you know, Jesus doesn't come down and have communion with you. You don't get assignments from angels. I mean, you obviously aren't good enough, but she is. Simple <laughs> questions about that because I know that our viewers might have similar questions yeah. because we have, you know, different types of revelation and encounter. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes it's a vision in the mind, sometimes mm -hmm. it's an open vision, sometimes mm -hmm. there's audible sounds, mm -hmm. or sometimes it's like what I would call real, like a reality encounter. Yes. It's like it's just as real 3D, 4D, mm -hmm. what, whatever. So when the heavens open, yeah, 3D, 4D, whatever it takes. What was it like? Was it a vision when you heard heard the Lord's voice and heard sounds? Was it audible? Was it inner audible? How did you? It was real it? because my father also saw it. Right. My father was with me. He so also just like saw an, the rainbow. Like my mother. Just, yeah, you'll notice here that uh, in talking about all of her so-called spiritual experiences, our um, attention is completely taken off of God's word and the teachings of Christ and the apostles and the prophets, the real ones. And now we're just off into speculation. So was it, was it 3D, 4D? Was it real, just audible, uh, something impressed on your mind? What was it like, you know? We are right now. Just like we are right here. And actually, that's the way all my experiences are. Every single one. Every single one of them wow. have always been that way. I've had very few that way. Mm -hmm. I've had many like... <laughs> like I've had none. Um, far as revelations into um, you know impressions mm -hmm. that the Holy Spirit opens up realms to show you mm -hmm. through impressions but I have had a couple of those where it's just real and vivid it's it's, it's awesome yeah you can never forget it yeah you know you just never forget any experiences with him like that but yeah yeah, yeah. I did spend 
a lot of my time, given a lot of my time in my life to him, I'm sure that helped to generate right. those experiences. Yeah, see, you earned it. Yeah, see, yeah. This goes back to the point that uh, Steve was making on my Facebook wall. Yeah, see, she, see, the reason why she did this because she's done the things necessary to earn these. Which, by the way, at this point should make you go, oh, that's not what the scriptures say. So these experiences, no matter how vivid, don't have their origin in the kingdom of God. No, they have their origin somewhere else. They're either the ravings of a lunatic woman or they're demonic in origin. Him. And you're a worshiper, and you I love am him, a worshiper. you've committed yourself. Yeah, you're so important, yeah. The righteousness, I yes, love that about I you. I have. I really have yeah. kept a lot of things out of my life by, by my choice. Yeah. Chose to have more of him in me so that when people heard me speak, they'd hear him. Yeah, this is all self-righteousness. Notice she's not talking about Jesus and the righteousness she's clothed with, clothed, clothed with by faith. That's his righteousness. No, this is all her own. Wow. I know that um, the Bible teaches that we have access to the heavenlies through the blood of Christ. That's right. And through sincere faith, we can access, we can experience, we can encounter. It's part of our, you know, just our covenant yes. in, in Christ. But Really, what passages are you talking about? If I went and looked those up in context, I don't think they'd say this. It is possible to engage in the supernatural, in the prophetic, in the revelatory realms, and still have a lifestyle that is not holy. Mm -hmm. So we can never look at a person who has had lots of experiences in the Lord and just assume that they've kept their life clean. You're right. You know, because lots of people have had encounters. But Oh, quick. You know, she realizes she's teaching uh, encounters by work. So now she's got to back up. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. some of the people who've received them haven't, they haven't exactly kept their lives clean like you, like you have, Kat. Not holy in the heart. And of course, God knows that, doesn't he? He yes, knows he does. every life. And he does know every life, and yeah. you're absolutely right. And the word actually says, don't know people. Do not know people by their gifts. Right. Know them by their fruit. Right. And one of those is righteousness. Are you living a holy life? Come on. Are you loving people? Are you speaking words that bring life and not death? Yeah. You yeah, I'm not hearing you preach the gospel. I'm hearing you talk about yourself. So those will be words that bring death, not life. Are you aware of what's going on around you in your life? What kind of image are you portraying? Are you portraying the image of God? Are you becoming the face of heaven right. so that people see? Am I becoming the face of heaven? Oh. Hear heaven. It right. does make a big difference because the enemy, if you, if you don't have an intimate life with the Lord, the mm -hmm. enemy totally can fool people and deceive right. people. And the other thing is... Yeah, that's right. And you're the poster child for that. Wow. Um <clears throat> I'm not hearing anything about Christ. Are you? No? Nothing about sound biblical doctrine, what the scriptures teach? Nope. Just two women deciding to gab on about, well, their experiences. That ain't Christianity. And what they said, what they taught there is actually contradicting. It's, it's contradicted by scripture. Yeah, I don't need people who've had experiences like that. I, I need to trust the risen Savior and those who I, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. We're to be students of the apostles and the prophets before them, not Patricia King and Kat Kerr and their ridiculous, non-biblical ravings about experiences and you know commuting to heaven on a regular basis. Oh boy.
All right, we are a little long today on our, uh, to get to our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Warning, beware of women claiming to have ascended to heaven. They're, well, taking your eyes off of Jesus Christ and his word and putting it onto their dreams and visions and self-righteousness. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of our friendly yellow buttons there, the uh, Join Our Crew button. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. When you sign up uh, through uh, well through this month, we will send you the link to download the uh, Max Holiday's uh, you know, Budgie Cuts 2 album. So if you don't have that already, we'll send you the link to uh, download that. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Sing along and help me butcher the song if you know it. So that's uh, one of the songs we use when we're doing a tele-evangelist update. And who 
well as the king of the televangelists, none other than Bishop T.D. Jakes. And if you've been paying attention to Oprah, which I don't really recommend at all, um, when Oprah does anything spiritual, um, run. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why people have dubbed Oprah America's pastor. <laughs> Unless you're into like new age false doctrine, but anyway, um, yeah, like I said, run if you ever find yourself tempted to sit in front of the television and listen to anything that has to do with uh, spirituality as presented by Oprah. Well, uh, on the uh, summer Super Soul Sunday series from Oprah, the Oprah Winfrey Channel, uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes uh, was recently featured, and. Um, he spent some time warming up the crowd there for Oprah's uh, Super Spiritual Sunday whatevers. And, well, see if you can make heads or tails of this message, at least biblically. I mean, does any of this make any biblical sense to you? Here's Bishop T.D. Jakes. From his mega church in Texas. You can't just be a recipient of the blessing. You have to do something to make it happen. Did you hear that? You can't just be the recipient of the blessing. You have to do something to make it happen. Ho, 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 ho. Law, not gospel. That's works righteousness. When we were in Toronto to film Life Class, Bishop T.C. Jakes took the stage before the show that you saw began to give this talk. It was so good, and the live audience so inspired, I knew we just had to show it to you on Super Soul Sunday. Uh-huh. So, all right, let's see if this has anything to do with biblical Christianity. Uh, you know, because keep in mind, T.D. Jakes, you know, he was declared to be Orthodox by James McDonald and Mark Driscoll at Elephant Room 2. Hold on to your hats. Here's Bishop T.D. Jakes. I'm excited to have an opportunity to be with you. For the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about your thoughts, about your head, about what's going on inside of you. I want to develop the part of you that is necessary for you to soar like an eagle and to accomplish your destiny. Hmm. Bishop T.D. Isn't he a Christian? He's supposed to be a Christian, right? So don't you think he should be teaching Christian doctrine? And I want you, if you're taking notes, if you're writing down things, if you're tweeting the, anything, I want you to do this right off the top. I want you to, first of all, say, I am no greater than the thoughts I think. Um, I'm no greater than the thoughts I think? I can't remember any biblical passages that teach that. Okay. Uh... Say it again. I am no greater than the thoughts I think. So that's all law, but so you got to think big thoughts. Yeah, that's important. I am excited to talk to you today because part, the most important part of life, I think we're missing it. I think we're not getting it. I think we're not getting what we really need to do to accomplish our, as Oprah would say, our highest and best self. Uh huh. Um, you're going to teach the doctrine of original sin here, right? To explain how the reason why all of us are struggling is because we're born dead in trespasses and sins at war with God. Is that what you're going to talk about and how we need to be regenerated through the hearing of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, one by Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sins and raised on the third day for our justification? Is that what you're going to talk about? And if we're not accomplishing it, then part of who we really are is hidden. 
it's just hidden from view and we're going through the motions and not really maximizing who we really ought to be in life. I teach a lot of seminars for uh, executives and I teach a lot of seminars for married people and, and they both suffer from the same thing. It's all relationships. It's all relationships. If, if you could just get the person you dated, if you could be married to the person you dated, marriage would be wonderful. Oh, that's the problem. Okay. Uh, not that I'm suffering from that. It's like, okay. Uh -huh. But people, you date one person and you end up married to somebody else. Trust me, if you, if you can't say amen to that, you're either not married or you haven't been married very long. Uh -huh. So we're making an argument about a true self versus a false self based upon a uh, a marriage dating metaphor. Not yeah. You got any Bible verses that teach this? <laughs> One morning you're going to roll over and look at him and say, "Who in the world is this?" I've hired people and the interviews are always amazing. The resumes are always good. You never see a bad resume. The interview goes real good. And then two years down the road, you wonder, where is the person I interviewed? See, all of us have an ideal self. That's who we would like for everybody to think we are. Uh -huh. And we project that out. It's not really who you are. It's your representative. And then Okay, so I got an ideal self that's not really who I am, but my representative. Okay, well, okay, great, yeah. You have your real self. I wonder how much I pay that guy, but... In order for the life class to be effective, we can't work with your image. We can't work with who you pretend to be. We want to go down to the core of who you really are. Uh-huh. And uh, the Bible passages again? And the core. Everybody say core. Oh, you got to do better than that. Shout core. That's where we're working from. All of the teachers that are working with you today, they're not working with your image and who you project outwardly because you can project something outwardly that appears to be happy and inwardly be miserable and be frustrated and not be complete because there is conflict between who you project and who you really are. We want to close the distance between your real self and your ideal self so that you can... Mm, close the distance between my real self and ideal self. Again... Um, Bishop, um, where is any of this taught in the Bible? I, I'm, I'm, you know, just kind of thinking through. I mean, through the Scripture here, um, nothing's. I come, I'm coming up bupkis. You know, it's like nothing is coming to mind that remind. You know, I could say, ah, oh, yeah, that's that biblical teaching. It's, it's in the the Book of Maps. You know, uh, page four. Live in your real life according to your ideals without conflict. Are you ready for this? I want you to think with me a little bit because we're, we're going to go on a little journey for a little while. If I took you back in time and put you in a space machine, you know, yeah, yeah. and a bunch of smoke came out and you went back in time and you went back to like, say, maybe, uh, maybe the 1700s, what all would we lose by being in the 1700s? Okay, so we're making an argument based upon an imaginary trip on a time machine. Yes, but, you know, we'd lose T.D. Jakes, that's for sure. Your yeah. phone's got to go. Your iPad's got to go. Your computer's got to go. God, your telephone's got to go. Your car's got to go. Your microwave's got to go. All of the electric hair curlers y'all got got to go. Most of the makeup's got to go. Most of mo polyester's got to go. Fabrics have got to go. Every, almost everything that you call normal that you rely on, that you depend on, has been created within the last 300 years. Think about how long we've been 
on the planet. And yet most of the things that we embrace as normal has been the gift that has been given to us by people within the last 300 years. What did they know in the last 300 years that radically changed, I mean radically changed, how we live, how we travel, how we dress? Yeah, just a reminder, this is entitled Super Soul Sunday. Um, hmm. Now, it's weird that you invite somebody who's supposedly a major Christian leader. Um, and he's talking about, you know, getting down to our core and... He's not talking about sin. You know, Jesus himself talking about our course that out of the heart comes all kinds of sinful thoughts and desires, you know, you know, blasphemy, adultery, lying, thief, you know, theft, murder, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, but Jesus's message about the core of humanity seems to be way different than T.D. Jakes's, and I have no idea what this is accomplishing, but okay. Our conveniences, our technology, our, our, our ability to travel through the air and on trains and on planes and in cars and all of that stuff. Well, just in the last 300 years, it was the birthing of ideas. It was the birthing of ideas. Now, I want you to say something. It's going to be hard because there's a lot of women, maybe 70% in the room. The guys aren't going to know what to do with this at all, and the women aren't going to want to say this, but just, just by faith that we're just playing a game. This is not real, so don't, don't freak, don't panic. Don't don't asphyxiate or anything like that. But I want you to touch three people and tell them I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Tell them. Oh God, nobody did it. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Um. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, they show somebody, some poor guy in the audience touching these women sitting next to him, and he's going, "I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant." One lady couldn't say it at all. She said, "I'm." She couldn't even get up. I came to tell you to deliver the good news or bad news <laughs> that that we are all pregnant. Men, women, everybody. Pregnant with possibilities. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. I need to go see my gynecologist. Pregnant with potentials. Pregnant with ideas. And for the last 300 years, we have produced generations of people who gave birth to stuff that changed the world. Born out of the womb of their mind. Just radical people. Not necessarily people with money and staffs and teams and all that. We had that too. But just people who thought something bright and brilliant and effective. And they did something that changed not only their life and their children's life and their children's children's life, but changed the world for everybody. All right, they had to take a commercial break. We'll fast forward through the commercial and just continue on with this very pregnant um, spiritual soul Sunday thing from Bishop T.D. Jakes. I'll tell you what got me on this journey. I was asked to testify in a, in a court case as to what constitutes a church, seeing as I've been a pastor for 30 Five years. <laughs> I had to think about it a minute. 35 years. And I was brought in as a professional expert to define what constitutes a church. And I knew what I had to talk about and I began to think about it. And I began to think a church is not a building because you could take the building and turn it into something else. It's, it's, it's not the person who leads it because the person can die and it can still exist. And then I started thinking about corporations. I thought, what, what is a corporation? A corporation is not a building. It can change addresses and continue to exist. It's not the CEO. The CEO can be defrocked, defamed, or de-anything, and the corporation can still go on. 
if it's not the building and it's not the person and it's not the product, then the church or the corporation is just an idea. Ideas that radically change the world. My challenge in our generation is that gradually through entertainment, through television, through media, through every way possible, we are living in a generation of the dumbing down of ideas. No kidding. <laughs> Look at all the false doctrine running around on <clears throat> like TBN, you know. Because we have traded effectiveness for busyness. Statistics say, yeah, somebody ought to clap. What does this have to do with Christ? He's supposed to be a Christian pastor, a Christian bishop, right? So on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, he's... What is this? This is like Rick Warren's TED Talk. God loves it when you be you kind of stuff. We are busier than any other generation we have seen in the last three to four hundred years. We are so busy. We are we are busier than a wall than a one-armed wallpaper hanger. We're just busy. busy. You'll get it later. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll hit you in a minute. We are just as busy as we can be, and we think because we're busy, we're effective. But I want you to challenge your schedule for a minute and ask yourself: Are you are you really being effective? Or is your life cluttered with all kinds of stuff that... Well, I mean, this is a great question to ask. Let's take a look. Is he effectively preaching Christ and him crucified? Is he calling anybody there to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Or is he just being busy spewing out a bunch of words that really have nothing to do with Jesus? All right, let me think about it. Yeah, he's not being effective at all, but he sure is busy. But he ain't busy teaching anything biblical. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to fast forward a little bit. And don't worry, if you're thinking I'm skipping over the Jesus part, there is no Jesus part in here. And if you don't believe me, go back and watch the video for yourself. But I want you to see where he goes from here. He's going to actually teach that uh, that false doctrine that Oprah pitches so often uh, from that book, the the Secret. You know, the the law of attraction. You know, you know, you got to think positive thoughts, and then that attracts po good things in your life. He, he, T.D. Jakes actually teaches a form of that. And then after that, I mean, he just goes, he whips this crowd into a frenzy using just verbal gibberish. It's just that he is a very skilled orator, but he's not teaching anything that has any substance to it. Where do you see where he goes with the whole baby analogy, you know, you know, about giving birth to something? Yeah, apparently they're going to have open up a labor room here at the uh, Oprah Studios here in a second. I'm not joking. Here, listen in. Because you are where you are through the thoughts that you think. The, the difference... Okay, that's the law of attraction from the, the, the book The Secret. That's the same theology as that. By the way, the reason why... Uh, T.D. Jakes is resonating with that, is that theology, that false doctrine, because he's a word of faith heretic. Between the CEO and the janitor is what he thinks. The difference in the status and the income and the accomplishment is in the thoughts 
that they think. That's the only absolute differences in the thoughts that they think. I wonder what you need to be thinking about yourself and your family and your friends and your life to maximize who you are and live your life to the fullest. And then when you meet people, you're not so hungry and so desperate for them to tell you something because you have fed yourself before you met them. Fed myself with what? Now watch, he's going to define spiritual poverty here in a minute. Notice it's not the biblical concept that you're dead in trespasses and sins. Listen. It is all a result of the thoughts you think. So if we can get the clutter out of our mind, if we can get the guilt out of our mind, if we can get the shame out of our mind, if we can get the worry out of our mind, if we can get the busyness out of our mind, then all of a sudden we're going to have ideas which are seeds. And the seed of an idea planted firmly in your mind where you believe in yourself and you believe in your potentials and you believe in what you've got and you believe in your stuff. It's good. My thoughts. Believe in yourself, believe in your potential, not believe in Jesus Christ? Well, that tells you who your God is, doesn't it? ...are good. If you don't believe in the thoughts you think, then you're going to spend your life searching for somebody to believe in the thoughts you think. Oh, no. If so, if I don't believe in the thoughts I think, then, oh, that's terrible. And that is a tragedy. Yeah, Ladies, it's terrible. Could you imagine going through life not believing in the thoughts you think? Ladies and gentlemen, because you have put your destiny in the hands of someone else. That is bankruptcy of the soul. Mm, so bankruptcy of the soul is not believing in your own thoughts, not believing in yourself. Hmm. I thought bankruptcy of the soul is not believing in the one true God, not believing and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, being at war with him. Huh. Truly not biblical at all, is it? And where in the Bible are we told to believe in ourselves? Hmm, nowhere. That is the bankruptcy of the soul. And Not according to the Bible, just according to you. And when your soul is bankrupt, you find yourself in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, so if your soul's bankrupt, you, you know, you're going to have all kinds of trouble. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit again, and here comes the great crescendo of false teaching, whipping these people up into a lather, and it's all nonsense. There is no substance here whatsoever. Listen in. I came to deliver a message to every person in this room who's had a struggle, who's had some pains, who's had some tests, who's got some creative ideas, but you've gone through some really tough stuff. Let me tell you something. The stuff you've been through, don't pay it any attention. It is just a sign that the baby is coming. You're on the verge. Oh, yeah. So all those struggles, you it's just a sign the baby's coming. Who knew? I mean... Of birthing. You're on the verge of birthing. You're on the verge of birthing. You're about to give birth. I want you to touch everybody you can reach and tell them the baby is coming. The baby is coming. The baby is coming. This is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But everyone there is just caught up in the moment. Wow, he can really, really preach. Is that is this preaching? 
The baby is coming. 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 You don't want to leave me now. The baby is coming. You don't want to walk out on me now. The baby is coming. I haven't had my best idea yet. I haven't had my most creative moment yet. I haven't produced my dream yet. I don't care whether you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. There's something down inside of you that's still kicking inside of you that wants to get out and it wants to live. It wants to live. The whole reason you're here today is because there's something in you that needs to be fed, that needs to be stirred, that needs to be electrified, that needs to be illuminated. Yeah, no one's being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But they sure are cheering now. Wow, there's something inside of me that wants to live. It's an idea. Something down inside of you. Yeah, at the end of this, he's laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, seriously, people, what are they cheering about? This doesn't, this is just absolute pablum. It's nonsense. This is the story of the emperor has no clothes, except for at this point, you know, T.D. Jakes has convinced everybody in the audience who's naked that they're wearing something spectacular. I believe there are businesses in you, companies in you, concepts in you, books to be written, paintings to be drawn, concepts to be birthed, ideas, creative concepts. There's something that you could do. That what on earth does this have to do with the soul? That you could think in your life that would radically change your life. Somebody could take the hand you've been dealt and win with it. Same circumstances, same ideas. They would do it through what they thought about your life. But you know what this is? It, let me interrupt here again. I just, this is just so disgusting. But listen, okay? The world we live in doesn't seem to make any sense, okay? Because when you look at the world, I mean, you look at the different social strata and the way, you know, there are people who are millionaires and multimillionaires and billionaires. And 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 then there's, well, average Joes like the rest of us, okay, who, you know, work every day for a living and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't make a lot of money. And so so it's really easy to go, what is it that they have that I don't have? Right? What is it that made it possible for them to have all of that wealth and the and to, you know to, and the mansion and, and and the Cadillac and the and the and the private jet and all, uh, what is it that made it possible for them to have all of this and to have all the success and stuff like that? I wanna I want that too. And so basically, T, somebody like T D Jakes comes along and goes, oh, I know the secret for that. I know how to get you there, and he tells you the story that that gives you some kind of sense of hope that you can be important and rich and affluent too just like all those other people you could be like a movie star or, or a, a, a multi-gazillionaire you know you, you understand what i'm saying you know what this is it's it's listen there is no secret to any of this stuff i mean some of it's just dumb luck some of it's hard work um you know it and so these guys come along and they puff everyone's ego up and it, this i mean this is the equivalent of um of taking a pill and thinking that by taking the pill that all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and you're going to have everything that you need to launch you into you know your multi-million dollar venture or whatever so that you can 
achieve greatness too in your life. There's no magic pill for this, and that's what this all claims to be. And of course, you know, people will uh, reward richly the person who feeds their ego like this, and that's what T.D. Jakes is doing. I mean, this is just magic. This is a well-told story that gets people whipped up into an emotional frenzy and says, Yeah, I can be rich and wealthy too. I just need to give birth to the idea inside of me. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, right, yeah. This is just nonsense. But we don't need somebody, because we got you. We got you. You're the one. You are the one. I want you to join hands with somebody. So you're the one. Apparently you're, you're, you're your own messiah. Come back for just a minute. I'm telling you right now, if you are going to birth your dream, your calling, your passion, and the second half of your life, you can't draw back when life gets tough. You've got to stand up to it and push. Yeah, apparently now we're, we're going to pretend everyone's pregnant now with a with a dream inside of you, and so here you are. He's 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 now there, ready to catch your dream as you birth it. You know, so you know you're in the labor room now, and you got to push. This is nonsense. Get that person by the hand, because there's something inside of them that is about to happen. Squeeze their hand. And when I count to three, I want every man and every woman that's got a concept, that's got an idea, I want you to push with all of your might until dreams and concepts and ideas start to birth out of you in the middle of the night. You're going to need pins and pads by your bed tonight because you're going to have to get up in the middle of the night and start writing down all the stuff that's going to start coming out of your spirit when this day is ready. Are you ready? One. So there we go. Apparently Oprah had the world's largest labor and delivery room um, there for Super Soul Sunday. Another post I'm going to post on uh, the web tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to post this at Letter of Mark. God's explanation for the success of seeker-driven megachurches and guys like T.D. Jakes. Let me, let me read to you what will be posted at the Letter of Mark blog tomorrow on the 4th of July. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the, uh, the Apostle Paul to take up his pen and write this word of encouragement and warning to us. In these words, we will also find God's explanation regarding the raging popularity of seeker-driven megachurch churches and, well, like pastors like um, T.D. Jakes. He's not really a pastor. According to Scripture, they're not successful because they've tapped into the latest movement of God or because they're on the cutting edge of revival or because they found a way to communicate the timeless truths of Scripture in fresh and relevant ways. Nope. Here's what God says. Quote, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. That would be the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. This would be the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's from 1 John chapter 4, verses 4-6. through 6. 
The biblical scholar Dr. Paul Kretzmann uh, said regarding this passage of Scripture, quote, The spirit which the apostle has above called the spirit of Antichrist is here identified with the spirit of the world and, the, and of this world, with the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. This is shown by the contrast where he says, You are of God, little children, and you have conquered them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The believers belong to God, and they are children of God. Therefore, they not only have the knowledge necessary to examine and test the spirits, but they also have the ability and power to withstand their allurements and to conquer them. All anti-Christian temptation is powerless against the strength of God that lives in the believers. For though Satan, the prince of darkness and the father of lies, is, the false te- is in the false teachers lives in them, actuates them, yet God, who lives in us, who is our strength and our refuge, is greater and stronger than the devil with all of his angels. The apostle adds another reason for carefully examining the claims claims and for guarding against the evil influence of the false teachers. Why? Because they are of the world. Therefore, they talk as of the world, and the world listens to them. No matter what their pretense and their glamour, the false teachers belong to the world. They have the world's manner and the world's mind. This is shown also in their talking, in their teaching, and their preaching. For its substance is not divine and leading to godliness, but it is inspired by the world, by its manner of thinking and acting. False teachers usually have messages that tickle the itching ears of their hearers. The children of the world will gladly hear them. The world receives their doctrine with enthusiasm. It is an almost unfailing criterion. If a certain preacher is widely advertised and acclaimed as a prophet for our times, he has probably managed to accommodate the old scriptural language to some of his own philosophy in denying the fundamentals of the Bible. Witness the so-called Christianity of the social gospel, or I would even add to it the health and wealth, name it and claim it gospel, stuff like that. Of himself and his co-workers, John writes by way of contrast, we are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God does not hear us. In this you can recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The apostle, the apostles were not only converted Christians, true believers, but they were also messengers, ambassadors of God. Thus, all true preachers whose call is from God are messengers of God, no matter how lowly they may be in the sight of the world. True Christians show their knowledge of God, their faith in Him, by listening to these messengers, that would be the apostles, by yielding due obedience to the gospel message which they bring. They are thereby distinguished from those who know nothing of regeneration and want to know nothing of the gospel of salvation. The attitude of men toward the true preachers of the gospel is a reliable indication of their own spiritual state, whether they are still governed by the spirit of error, of falsehood and deceit, or whether they have opened their hearts to the spirit of truth and have come to faith. Thus, Dr. Paul Kretzmann, I think, nails it right there. He nails it. Scriptures make it clear. Why why is uh, T.D. Jakes... So, so popular? Well, he doesn't teach the truth. No. The reason why he's popular is because he speaks from the world 
and the world listens to him. He tells the world what the world wants to hear, and the world gladly receives him as a prophet of God. But he doesn't preach the truth. He doesn't preach repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He teaches an oprified gospel, a gospel that says, think positive thoughts and good things will come your way. The world loves that message. But the message that Christians are to give is the message of repent. Repent. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of your evil. Repent of your sin. And be forgiven. Because your great God and Savior was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified for your sins. He died, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. Repent and be forgiven. That's the message the world refuses to hear because they are in bondage to the spirit of error. Those who've been set free, who've been brought to faith and trust in Christ, now have the spirit of truth, and they believe the truth and they hear the truth, and they are not to listen to the lies of men like T.D. Jakes, who tells the world what they want to hear. All right, we're up on our second break. Well, well past the time here. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Get back here! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Well into hour number two. Super Soul Sunday. There was nothing about Jesus, so, I mean, there was... From the guy who's supposed to be the Christian dude, you know? Ay, ay, ay. All right, let's 
cue up our music and do our sermon review. Here we're going to go to Derby, Kansas. Hey, whoa. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. It's been a while since we've reviewed a sermon from Joe Boyd, but we're going to be going to Derby, Kansas, Aviator Church. Joe Boyd, a seeker-driven leader at Aviator Church and lead pastor. The name of the sermon series is Man, I Needed That. This is week four from the sermon series, the final sermon in the series. And... um, See if you see any similarities um, to what you just heard from, well, Bishop T.D. Jakes. And uh, we'll see if uh, Joe Boyd is going to do his biblical duty. Preach the Word. You know, the Word of God. You know, open up the Bible. You know, exegete the passage. Point us to Christ. Preach the gospel. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Now, just so you know. I haven't listened to this whole thing, so I don't know where he's going to end. So we'll have to discover this together. But let me kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Joe Boyd, Aviator Church, Derby, Kansas. Man, I needed that. Here we go. My name is Joe Boyd. I'm really glad that you're here today. I want to welcome you to our final week of the series, Man, I Needed That. And this is a series uh, that focuses on needs that men have. We focus on... um, approval. Um, We've focused on respect and honor. We have talked about the need for friends. And today we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about the need for dreams. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, I was just listening to, you know, T.D. Jakes talk about my need to be pregnant, you know, with dreams and ideas. (sighs) <sighs> yeah, that's a manly topic, all right. So the need, uh, the ma- so he's, the sermon series on what men need. They need respect. They need friendship. <laughs> they need dreams. Oh man, <laughs> we continue in men's lives. I believe though that all of us have dreams and all of us have a need for dreams. But yeah, I believe. Um, yeah, Pastor um, Joe, listen, we've met, we've talked, and um, when when we'd met and talked, I told you that listen. I'm doing this to help you, not to hurt you. I need you to listen to me right now. This ain't what you're supposed to be doing. Your job as a pastor in a Christian church is to preach the word, not your opinions. And unless you've got a verse or a passage of scripture that says in context that we all need dreams, you're not doing your job. In fact, you're actually sinning and rebelling against what God has commanded you to do. That's a serious thing. You need to repent. We continue. Men especially need dreams. There isn't a young boy in here that doesn't have a dream of aspiring to be like a great athlete someday. I know whenever I was 12 and 13, I had the dream of playing in the NBA. Uh, Where I had the dream, I did not have the frame for it and uh, should have been pursuing another sport. But but, but I, I was motivated by my dream, and my passion fueled the drive to go shoot basket after basket after basket in my driveway. And then I, I, I grew up, and, and I had a dream that I would be successful and lead uh, people and organizations that would change the world around us. 
And, and I didn't know that what God wanted to do was use all that leadership development to ultimately be a Christ follower and lead other people to see cities transform one life at a time. And, and it brings up the question, how big are your dreams? Because let me tell you something, if your dream can be accomplished by you and you alone, your dream is too small. Ah, hmm, okay. Um, which passage of scripture, number one, says that we all need to have dreams? And which passage of scripture does God condemn us for having small dreams? Now, the reason I put it that way is this, is that Joe here is the pastor, the lead pastor at Aviator Church. And this is the sermon time. And it is understood that when the pastor gets up and preaches, that he is supposedly telling us what God wants from us, right? He's supposed to be representing God at this moment. So by saying what he said, that if your dream is too small... It needs to be bigger. He's basically, what's assumed here is, is that God is not happy with your dreams if they're too small. So I just, again, I'm going to ask the question, where does, the in the Bible, does God condemn us if our dreams are too small? Answer, by the way, it doesn't. The way that you know you have a God-sized dream <coughs> is that it is going to cause people to laugh or to sweat. Really? And where does that say that in the Bible? If you have a God-sized dream, it'll cause people to laugh or sweat. Where does it say that? Answer, it doesn't. This is not a biblical teaching thus far. <clears throat> what I mean by that is that when you tell people your God-sized dreams, some people will laugh and say, that'll never happen. But those who follow Christ, who believe that God can do anything they'll begin to sweat because they'll begin to think, how can we do this? How can we accomplish this God-sized dream? And you may be wondering, where do these types of dreams come from? And the answer is very simple, and it's your first insert for the day, and it is God is the source of our dreams. God is the source of our dreams. God has very clearly given us a dream of being a church that can see a city transformed one life at a time. We are sold out for that vision. We're sold out for that dream. But that's going to require far more than, than just the number of people that are here today. We represent just a small percentage of the community that we live in. If we're going to see our entire city transformed, we're going to have to step up and we're going to have to be followers of Christ and leaders that can see a city truly transformed. And in pursuing that dream, we know that it comes from God. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17, we discover that God is truly the source of our dreams. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on which people? All people. God will pour out his spirit on all people. He'll begin to awaken us to the dream that he wants to see things transformed, that he wants to do something greater than he's ever done before. Now, just so you know, I'm going to just put a marker down here. He's eisegeting. And it also goes on to say that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, meaning they will profess Jesus Christ. I believe that in the days to come, we will become more and more vocal about our faith because God will be living in us and doing something through us. And we can't help but tell our friends and our family about the things that God is doing. 
And then it says, <coughs> young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. When I was a young man. Okay, now again, he's taking this out of context and he's isogeting, okay? Does Acts chapter 2, 17 teach us that all of all Christians are going to have dreams and visions and, and that they have to be big dreams and things like that? Answer, no, it doesn't, and I'll explain to you why. Let's take a look at this passage in context. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to point out a feature of this particular passage. And the feature is that, well, what's being spoken of here is claimed to be fulfilled. Listen then. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were in, uh, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we are each of us hearing in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging uh, to Cyrene and, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, Well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So see what's going on here? Peter here is taking this prophecy in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This is a prophecy of the prophet Joel, and he's applying it to the day of Pentecost. This is not a blanket promise that Christians are going to receive dreams from God. Here's what it says. In the last days it shall be... It shall be, God declares that I will pour up my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men see dreams and visions. Every male and female servant on those I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens and above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. By the way, um, you'll notice that this, you know, that's what happened when Jesus was being crucified. Uh, before the day, uh, the day of the great uh, of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day it shall come to pass. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the point is, is that there's these signs and wonders that point to the preaching of Christ. This is not a passage where the apostle Peter was saying, listen, I've got great news for you. God has a dream for every one of you, and you need to dream big, and they all come from God. The point of all of these signs and wonders, which was fulfilled there on that day of the day of Pentecost, was that people would hear the good news of the forgiveness of sins and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. 
So let me continue with Peter's preaching then. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by killing by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. That is why it was impossible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption, for you have made known to me the paths of life. Life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades or did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he is poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and Peter said to the and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God, our God, calls to himself. So, yeah, um... You see, Acts two seventeen is not a blanket promise that we're all going to have God sized dreams. In fact, the whole point of that was that that was you know the day of Pentecost that the prophecy of the prophet Joel was fulfilled, and all of that was to buttress the proclamation and preaching of Jesus, so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But unfortunately, Joe here has missed the whole point. Let me throw in a couple of other passages that you may want to consider as you can as you listen to this so-called sermon <clears throat> regarding dreams. Um, for instance, Ecclesiastes chapter five. Flip on over to Ecclesiastes chapter five, and uh, I'm gonna well, I'll, I'll start at verse one and uh, read a few verses for you and see what you think about what the Bible teaches here directly regarding dreams. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice, the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase 
and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. This is what the direct word of God says on this matter. So, I mean, are we really hearing what God has told us that we need to be believing in this matter? Probably not. Um, let, let me give you a, another passage for you to consider as we listen to this sermon um, that supposedly is you know, telling us that we need to have big dreams, really, really big dreams. And let's see if that's what, uh, what is borne out in Scripture. Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy. That was, These would be pastors. That's what the word pastor means, by the way, shepherd. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. You have driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who are who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, this would be Jesus, and and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say as the Lord lives, who brought us up out of, the, out of uh, uh, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries which he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Verse 9, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. So this is not good, okay? In the house of the Lord, he's finding spiritual adulterers, prophet and priest, right? Therefore, they shall be, uh, therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink, for from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth 
of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. Sounds like Joel Osteen, doesn't it? It shall be great with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Or do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers had forgotten my name and followed after Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Hmm. So, um, who are you going to believe? Yahweh, who gave us Jeremiah 23, and when you look at uh, Acts 2 in context, who are you going to believe? God's word? Or, well, Joe Boyd? I had visions for success. I had visions for my life. I had visions of what could be. But now I know, <clears throat> because God's clearly teaching me, that I'm an old man. As I, as I brush my teeth and shave every day, and I see more and more of these white hairs and gray hairs in my beard, I know that I'm an old man because God says that I would dream dreams. And I believe that when we are young, we have a vision. We have <coughs> a hope, a desire to see things change. But I think the older and the more mature we get in our faith, we tend to rely less on ourselves and we try to rely more on what God would show us, that he would give us a revelation of what could be and what should be. And I believe that God wants to do something huge to transform our cities. And God's already doing it. God's transforming our cities here in Derby and Mulvane and Hayesville and Rose Hill and, and, and Belle Plaine and Wellington. And we're seeing things happen in, in Wichita. 
You know, just this past week, we literally did dozens of outreach as a church to various parts of our cities. And people were touched with the love of Jesus Christ in a practical way. And they began to ask the question, why would you do this? Because, because we want to honor God and we want to build healthy relationships at the speed of life. We're doing it because we want to see your life transformed by the power of God. Now, I believe, though, that sometimes dreams seem too big to handle. I mean, they just seem too big. I can remember when we were starting this church that I prayed and asked God to give me a picture of what is to come. And, and in that, I had a dream that we would be a large and growing church that would reach out and make a difference in our community. And it made some people laugh and it made me sweat more than I'm sweating today because I knew that it was gonna take a lot of people and I didn't know how we were gonna do it with, with our limited resources. Now, knowing what you know about vision casting, it, what is he doing here? He's reinforcing the fact that he claims that he's received a direct vision from God to do church the way he's doing it. Forces with, with my limited abilities, how were we gonna do this? And you know, interestingly, even the disciples were given dreams by God that seemed like they were too big to handle. And we can learn a lot from the way that they approached God-sized dreams and the way that God responds to those dreams. And today I wanna to share with you two stories that I believe are gonna shed light on how God wants us to pursue our dreams. The first one's a little bit longer, the second one's very short, but the second one hidden inside of it has a point that if we're not careful, we could miss. And so today, if you join with me, we're gonna spend the vast majority of our time in Mark chapter 6. And we're going to pick up in verse 34 through 36. And, and this is where the disciples um, are, are coming with Jesus and they're getting off a boat and they're seeing a large crowd of people. And they're about to step into a God-sized dream that seems too big to handle. <laughs> really? Is this from the purpose-driven commentary uh, on this particular gospel passage? Because, uh, yeah, you're not going to find nobody who says that, who's a legit biblical scholar. It says, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It was overwhelming to Jesus when he looked out and he saw all the people, and he said, they have no one to lead them. And so he began teaching them many things. And by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already been very late. And they're saying, Jesus, you've been preaching a long time. And some of you are like, man, Joe, you really preach a long time, and I got nothing on Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't concerned about the clock. He wasn't concerned about the buffet or the lunch plans that people had. And so the disciples decide instead of putting on Jesus, they want Jesus to put it on the people. And he says, send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Everybody say themselves. Isn't that interesting? That the three things that take place when we recognize that some dreams are too big to handle, the first thing that happens is there needs to be compassion. Jesus had compassion for these people. I um, this isn't about a dream. You've inserted that into the text. This isn't about a dream. I think that some of us think, man, 
We don't see God-sized miracles occurring in this day. Some of us think the only miracles that ever happened were recorded in the Bible. But Jesus said, you'll do far greater things than this. And I think that the reason why we don't see more miracles occur where God does huge God-sized things is not because God doesn't want to do it, but because we don't see people through the eyes of Jesus. So you got to earn miracles based upon a proper perspective. And we don't have enough compassion to recognize that people... Yeah, a proper perspective and compassion. you got to have the right combo there in order for you to see a miracle. People need Jesus. The second thing after you recognize and have compassion for people is you've got to recognize the most important thing you can do is teach them God's ways. That's why Jesus focused so heavily. Mm, actually, it's teach him God's word. Heavily on teaching his word. He taught them many things, not a few things. He taught them many things because he wanted them to live a godly life. He wanted them to live a life of victory and not as victims. He wanted them to live. Uh-huh. Victory, not as victims. Um, yeah, Joe, you need to stop watching Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen's a heretic, and it's clear you've been listening to him. You need to knock that off with him and then the third thing that happens whenever we see that dreams are too big to handle is there is a recognition of needs and where Jesus is not the one that recognizes the physical need for all these people to eat it was his followers who recognized the need and I believe that Jesus is waiting on you and I to begin to recognize I believe that Jesus is waiting on you and I to recognize Really, do you have a passage that says that? I mean, it's fine that you have that belief and all, but can you back it up from Scripture? The needs of those that are around us so that he can do the next thing. And you're like, Joe, what's the next thing after that? I mean, the problem is this seems pretty big. But you know what? God's not limited. God can do the extraordinary with the ordinary. Well, the, absolutely true. Yeah, that's that. Can you can actually teach that from biblical texts? Go on. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is in the business of taking everyday, boring, just normal things, and ordinary, normal people like you and I, and He does the extraordinary through them, so that He can get the glory and show that He's God. And so we pick up, and He answered them. This is what He said. They said, "You send them away." But he said, you give them something to eat. Do you ever think that sometimes we're the thing that's standing between what God wants to accomplish in our communities? That we bring all these needs. Tell the rest of the story. Prayer concerns. We cry out to God and say, God, you fix this. But God, if we'll listen, is really saying to us many times, you recognize the need, now you do something about it. You know what the problems are. Why don't you step up? You know, you know that family needs help. Why aren't you doing it? Yeah, I know your church needs help. That's why I stepped up and decided to uh, review the sermon to show them that you're not rightly handling God's word. And then he goes on to say, they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it them, give that to them to eat? I mean, isn't that just like disciples? Isn't that just like us? When God gives us a challenge, we immediately start thinking in terms of limits and quit thinking in terms of God. 
God's not limited. God's not concerned about what we don't have or what it's going to cost us. God's concerned about us fulfilling God-sized dreams. And so he puts it back on them. What do you have? He says, how many loaves do you have? And they don't even know. Because he asked, go and see. They actually had to go take an inventory of what they had. When was the last time we stopped and considered what we have? You know, every person in this room that's sitting here today, we got it better than somebody. And some of the things that we have just sitting around that are in storage, that are just sitting in the cupboard, or just sitting around, that's, that's something that God wants to use for a miracle. If we're willing to just take an inventory and recognize we've got it better than most. Um, so I got stuff in my garage that God wants to use as a miracle. How are you getting that out of this text again? And so they did. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. They had five loaves of bread and they had two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish. I think sometimes God just wants us to recognize what we have so that he can use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's great that you think that. Um, does the text say that? Now, the other thing that I know God wants to do is that God achieves these dreams, these God-sized dreams, through groups. Uh. God achieves dreams through groups. Okay, and how do you get this out of this text? You know, it's interesting to me because Jesus has always been in the business of using groups. Like, for instance, Jesus used a group of disciples, right? He had 12. It grew to 72. He sent them out in groups of pairs. And in and, and, and his discipleship as it grew, he always had some order to it. In fact, Jesus uses groups to meet the span of care needs within communities. And some of you are like, well, Joe, what is a span of care? What does that mean? What that means is that, that if we are a large group, it would be hard to meet the specific needs of everybody by distributing it out one at a time. But when we break out into groups, we can better care for one another in smaller units. That's why we're a collection of families in our church. That's why we're not a church with small groups. We're a church of small groups because we want people to be in groups because that's where care takes place. Like if you're in a group, that's where you do deeper Bible study. If you're in a group, that's where you care. Hey, notice the emphasis here. If you're not familiar with these categories, you need to listen to my lecture from May 11th, the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith, entitled Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. You need to listen to that lecture if you haven't heard it yet. It'll help you here because he's eisegeting a particular concept regarding community into this text. For one another, that's where you have fellowship, where you have relationship with other Christians that keep you strong and encourage you and love you and say, let's keep going. It's also through groups that we care for one another. When people get sick and they go to the hospital, our groups are always the first to respond to the people when they're in groups. If you need care in your life, get in a group because that's what we do. And that's how we do it because that's the way God did it. Just this past week, I saw groups respond to two families who had... Now he's off the text. ...enormous needs. This, this week... 
I had to do two funerals, one on Thursday and one on Friday. Both men were in their 20s. It's a tragic loss. And I got to see two different families handle the situation differently, and I got to see groups in our church meet the needs of those two different families differently. Whenever I got the call about the first family, their family, the, the parents of the family, were very plugged into a group that meets every week. And when I got to the house, when I got the news, to go there and give them a hug and care about them, that group was already there. Many of the people in the group were already caring for them. They were already sitting on the couch, holding them and crying with them. And you may think, what do I do whenever I lose a son? You know, what, 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 how do I respond to a family like that? You do what Jesus did. When Jesus was going to meet Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus had died, the Bible says he wept. Have compassion with people. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Just do life with them. Um, can you tell me again, what did Jesus do for us? Except for just set a good example. Be with them. That's what's most important. And I saw this group love on them, provide meals for them, care about them in an amazing way. Now, the other family, the son had come to this church, accepted Christ, was baptized, but the rest of his family didn't go to church. And I saw groups adopt that family and go to them and, and, and pray for them, bring meals for them, invite them to be a part of this. And next weekend, they're going to come and they're going to check out church. God achieves his dreams through groups. Mm, so God achieves his gr dreams through groups. Apparently, that's what Mark 6 is all about. God, Jesus achieving his God-sized dream through a group. We're going to take a look at the text here in a minute, and we'll demonstrate that, well, Jesus actually accomplished the miracle. Um, not through a group, um, but through a miraculous power that he had as being the Son of God. But Are you in a group? Are you in God's plan? Or are you just floating without a lot of movement in your life? See, it says in verse 39 through 40, it says, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Yeah, see, that's how he accomplished it, was through the groups. Actually, the groups were the recipients of the miracle. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Okay, so this was a large group. When you're breaking them down into fifties and a hundred, think about that. That's like breaking them down in seating sections at basketball games in 16,000 seat arenas. They were cared for in sections and in groups at a time because when they were in a group and a circle together, they could watch each other's kids, they could play together, they could eat together, they could share together, they could... Yeah, boy, we're, we're inserting all kinds of details into the text that the apostles left out. Weird. ...care for one another. They could easily distribute all the food. But then you're like, Joe, where's the food? See, Jesus is the dude with the food because they brought it to him. And that's where God achieves dreams through faithful leaders. Like... There are thousands of people here to be fed. So God achieves dreams through groups and faithful leaders. 
I mean, this is, who knew that the feeding of the 5,000 was all about, well, Jesus' dreams being fulfilled through groups and faithful leaders? And you ever think about this, this, this feeding of the thousands? You ever think about this? I need, I need a little help. If somebody who knows backstage could go and get me that, that big tub that's back there, I want you to bring that to me. Um, and I'm going to make a point with it in just a second. Jesus could have fed these people any way he wanted, okay? And he had fish and bread. He could have done it with just the fish and bread, but God's God. He could have just rained down baskets of Long John Silver into every person's hand. Like they could have just been sitting there in their groups of 50 and 100 and looked up and this basket falls out of the sky and they, they're like, mmm, I have fish planks and I have hush puppies and I have these little crunchy things and I don't know what they are, but they're of God, right? Because I think God made those little crunchy things. I don't know what manna is, but I know that it was probably like those little crunchy things. God does some really amazing things. He could have just split the sky wide open and they could have just opened their mouths. And he could have had the mothership land right adjacent to this group and then have Elvis, you know, come out and serve everybody. Been filled with Mountain Dew. But God didn't do it that way. God chose, instead of him being the one that provided it directly from the sky for him, he chose to work through faithful leaders to meet the needs of others. Um, let's take a look at the details there. Um, Bible, open up to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Hi. Um, all right. Um, verse 34, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him. Notice he taught them all day long. He had compassion on them, and the first thing he decided to do was to teach them. So after he taught all day Verse 35 says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. By the way, the 200 denarii was probably about all they had in their own money bag. So how many loaves do you have? And when they had found out, they said, well, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Who did the dividing? God did. Jesus did, right? So, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate loaves were five thousand men. Okay? So, Jesus said a blessing, gave thanks, broke the bread, 
And apparently the fish and the loaves just multiplied and he distributed to the disciples, the disciple distributed to the group. It was just a simple distribution system. Okay. Um, the miracle itself was accomplished by Jesus. The distribution of the miraculous food was, well, accomplished by the disciples. To the and they basically they became butlers, waiter, waiters. You, you get what I'm saying here? So um, we're not really getting the story straight. He keeps interrupting it and kind of skipping important details to make a point that he wants to make that the passage isn't making. This text does not say that God gets things done through groups. Um, Jesus uh, solo did the miracle and the distribution was done through the aid of the disciples. Um, the groups who were sitting on the green grass, they didn't accomplish anything. They were the recipients of the miracle, right? So, um, yeah, and as far as faithful leaders, um, sure, okay, yeah, the, the disciples were faithful waiters that day. Look at what he did. It says in verse 41 through 44 that taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven... He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. He focused on God first, God the Father, and he thanked God for it. And you think this is a formula for a miracle? And then he gave... Is this a formula for accomplishing a God-sized dream? This text isn't about a God-sized dream at all. ...them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among all of them. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Scholars tell us that there were women and children as well, and the number of people would have actually been somewhere in the ballpark of 20,000. And you're going, Joe, how many people is 20,000? Well, it would be more than 20 of these rooms completely full of people. It would be like going to Allen Fieldhouse on a sold-out game, and there would still be 4,000 people standing around the building wishing they were inside. It's more than a few. It was a lot. And Jesus had five loaves, and they weren't huge loaves because these guys carried it around. It didn't say they rolled it on the ground. And he had two fish. And Jesus held them up, so we know they weren't that big. And then it says they walked around and they just distributed all of this food, and everybody ate, and everybody ate so much that they were full. And then they had leftovers, and the disciples walked around with these baskets. And there were 12 disciples and 12 baskets, and they filled up their baskets with the leftovers. You ever think about why God did that? He clearly didn't do it for the crowd. He did it for the disciples because he wanted them to know that he was capable of providing more than enough. He also wanted them to understand that if they would work with him instead of trying to do everything themselves, they could do far more than they could ever imagine. Or uh, yeah, um, boy, this is just... I said Jesus of the worst kind. Really? Oh, yeah. So you know why Jesus did this, even though the text doesn't say why. You apparently can read God's mind. Wow. Or hope or dream. 
because God's in the dream business. He's in the business of doing things that blow our minds. Uh huh. God's in the dream business. Oh, man. Now, I think Jesus is in the saving of sal- of sinners business. That's why he was dead on the cross, and you know, for our sins. I think Jesus is about finding and seeking and saving the lost, bringing them to repentance and faith and trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. By the way, there's passages that say that. As far as God being in the dream business, yeah, none there. And in the midst of all this, these guys experience this great miracle. You would think, man, it's time to take a break. But Jesus, he's in the business of continually reaching out to people and sending people on missions. And God's dream team will be obedient in all things. So God's dream team will be obedient in all things. Well, I guess, Joe, that disqualifies you and every single human on the planet. We're going to be obedient in all things. The big things. No, 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 no. Jesus was the one who was obedient in all things. He was the one who was sinless, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his righteousness is imputed to us as if we're the ones who committed it. And it's given to us as a gift by faith. Notice the utter confusion of law and gospel. God's dream team will be obedient in all things. Hogwash. If that's really the case, then not one person on the planet except for Jesus is on God's dream team. All things. Sometimes God wants to keep using you. Like this past week, we did all this outreach. And when I tell you we did over 20 different things, I mean we did 20 different things in at least five different communities. But you know what's coming this week? Crazy awesome fun camp. And it starts on Tuesday. And if you haven't signed up for that, I would be obedient. I'd sign up your kids and get them there. Because God wants us to keep going. He doesn't want us to sit back and go, man, that was cool. He wants us to live a lifestyle where we're always on the go. It says in verse 4. Yeah, coming back to um, the uh, Facebook wall post from earlier today. Where is there peace in people's lives? I mean, this is nothing but the withering preaching of the law without the refreshing, comforting message of the gospel. This is all about everything you've got to do and nothing about what Christ has done. And yet the very passage he's reading from tells us of the great miracle that God did for them. And that even points us to Christ and what he's done for us. 45 through 47. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. And later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. You notice that? Like this big thing happens and God's saying, but I want you to go ahead of me. See, I believe that God's calling some of you to go ahead of He wants us to be obedient in all things, and he wants us to... Yeah, I don't even know what this point is. Go ahead, and that's not... Go ahead. How do I go ahead? Jesus isn't praying up on a mountaintop telling me to cross the Sea of Galilee. How am I supposed to, quote, go ahead? What are you talking about? Just some of us, that's all of us. God wants us to live out this thing called the Great Commission, where we go out and we baptize people in the name of the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. Yeah, that would require you to actually teach his, all of his word in context. And you've shown you're not really capable of doing that. Today, following this service, we're going to have a baptism celebration. We had a lady come here this morning. First time, and she's here to be baptized. See, God's in the business of doing things that we wouldn't expect. But that happens when we go ahead of where Jesus is because he sent us. Oh, man. It happens when we go ahead. So he's allegorized this. See, the disciples went. See, Jesus sent the disciples ahead. So, see, God's got to send us. we got to go ahead. This is a absurd reading of this text. You don't know the gospel, Joe. You don't know it's about what Jesus has done for us. As a result of it, you're saying these absurd things because you don't know how to make sense of the scripture because you think it's about you and what you need to do when it's about Christ and what he has done. You've got it all backwards and upside down. To be representatives for him. And he's saying, I'm going to be coming back, but I need you to be obedient and do what I ask you to do. And he connected with God the Father and he's praying. And they find themselves alone out on the water. And, and here's the point today. This is my last point. But if we're not careful, we could miss the point of these two stories. Which you already have done. You've totally missed the point. That God does this huge thing and feeds thousands. And then immediately he tells these disciples to go ahead to this land in a boat. And Jesus is alone, and he's praying, and he's resting, and he sends these disciples in this boat to go. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss the point. You've already done that. And there's, there's a point in this. There's two small points. Please. I had never read before I studied this for this message before. It just never jumped out at me like it did. And maybe you're going to notice it. I hope you will, but I'll point it out after I read it. Verses 48 through 50. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass them by, but when he saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And many of you think that the point that I'm going to make is that you shouldn't be afraid of God-sized dreams, that you should take courage. <sighs> this passage has nothing to do with God-sized dreams. <sighs> because God's with us, and, and he's here. But that's not the point that we're going to miss. The point that we're going to miss is this. They just saw Jesus feed over 20 thousand people with five loaves and two fish and nowhere in the scripture does it say that they strained to do it it doesn't even say they broke a sweat it just says that they had them distributed into small groups they walked around they fed them and then they walked around and they collected over 12 big baskets of leftovers and then he said, get in the boat and go. Go ahead of me. 
And you would think that these guys who had just experienced God doing a miracle before them and for them and through them, that they would know the power of God is the only way we're going to accomplish God-sized dreams. And in a task that's nowhere near as big, but the dream is that he wanted them to go ahead to this town, they did what too many of us do. We rely on our own selves to provide for the way for it to be accomplished. What on earth is he talking about? And think about this. Jesus had just taught them the most important lesson they're going to learn. And it says he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. If God could rain down Long John Silver's, if God had the power to multiply fish and bread, if God had the power to speak and have 20,000 people hear him without a sound system, don't you know he had the power to change the wind? Don't you know he had the power to guide them in where they didn't have to strain, but work in concert with what God wants to do? But the disciples, much like us, strain at the oars of life and try to do things ourselves and try to solve our problems. And we think, oh, I'm a good person. I just got to be. Okay. Can I just ask the obvious question? Okay. Let's go to this text again. Okay. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Okay. When Jesus told them to get in the boat and go to the other side, did Jesus expect them to be for the locomotive power of the um, of the boat to uh, well only be him or some miraculous wind or you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I mean the way the story reads. Okay, they got into the boat. Okay go to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So they couldn't, they could, the small little boat, they couldn't hoist the sail and go to Bethsaida because the wind was blowing the opposite way. So the only option that they had was to row. The text doesn't chastise them. They're not rebuked. They're not called the people of little faith because they were rowing. It just is reporting the circumstances of the trip across the Sea of Galilee that particular evening. The wind was going the opposite way, and so they were making headway with a lot of pain because the wind was blowing against them. They didn't cause the wind. Winds are an act of God, right? Ah. A little bit better person. And God's not calling you to be a good person. God's calling you to be a God person. And a God person knows that good people don't go to heaven. He knows that forgiven people go to heaven. He knows that... Okay, forgiven people. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Because you talked about God's dream team being, you know, basically men who are obedient in all things. That was your point earlier. And now you're saying that 
good people don't go to heaven, it's forgiven people. So your sermon is actually contradicting itself. Care to explain why? God people don't do it under their own power. They do it with the power of God. God's not calling us to strain. God's calling us to trust him, rely on him. And so were the disciples straining because they didn't trust Jesus? Really? The text doesn't say that. Call on him. And the part that's more shocking than the fact that they missed the point is that Jesus, who I think of as full of compassion, who loves us and never leave us, it says that he was walking on the lake. And I don't know about you, but man, every time I think about Jesus walking on water, I trip out. But what blows my mind more than the idea of Jesus walking on water is this verse. He was about to pass them by. Don't think for a minute that when God calls you to do something and he expects you to do it, not on your own power, but with him, when you don't do it, if you're not careful, Jesus will walk right on by. <laughs> and you'll miss it. You'll miss it. Yeah, there's Jesus right there in the story, and he's apparently Jesus just blew right past Aviator Church that Sunday. Man. Can you imagine Jesus walking right through the midst of our community, and we would miss it? It's happening as you speak. Because we're too busy trying to do it all ourselves. I heard this week a powerful statement. When men work hard, God rests. And when men rest in God, God works hard on their behalf. And what Bible verse says that? I know it sounds I sound so close to the truth, but um, I would question the um, authenticity of that statement based upon the fact I don't recall any biblical passages that say it. God wants to work hard on your behalf, but we've got to trust him. Jesus has worked hard on our behalf. Let's talk about what he has done. He lived a perfectly obedient life under the law, never sinned once. He was put on trial. He was beaten, scourged, mocked, spat on repeatedly. He was scourged and crucified, bearing the sins of the world, my sins and yours, right? That's what the scripture teaches. So Christ has done mighty things on our behalf. And he was crucified, dead, and was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended at the right hand of the Father. Okay? So Christ has done these amazing things for us. Let's talk about that, please. He wants to do more than you could ever imagine. But if we're not careful, he will walk right past us. Today, I... And then let me remind you, the name of the sermon is, Man, I Needed That. This is telling us all the needs of men, and we need to have God-sized dreams, and none of the biblical passages he's gone to teach that. Now we're being basically moralized and browbeaten with just a tiny little gospel speck thrown in there that doesn't make any sense. I believe that there are people in the room that don't know Jesus, and if you're going to ever experience a God-sized dream in your life, you're going to have to have the God-sized miracle in your life where you recognize that good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. 
And the way that you begin a relationship with God and begin to have these God-sized dreams is with a relationship with Jesus. So, okay, so let me see if I got this straight. So I, if I want to have a God-sized dream, so you're selling me God-sized dreams. That's the big bonus. You're selling me a God-sized dream, and the way I need to have it, it the only way I'm going to be able to get to those God-sized dreams is if I have a relationship with Jesus. Hmm. This is different than um, confronting sinners with their sin and bringing them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Where's the remorse for the sins that they've transgressed against God? Where's repentance? You're selling them God-sized dreams and then you know saying that the relationship with Jesus is the price of entries to get to that supposedly grand thing. It is the admission that we can't do it alone, that our sin tangles us up and it stops us from pursuing all that we want to be. It also tells... So sin stops us from pursuing all that we want to be. Oh, it's the great impediment of us achieving our dreams. It's very importantly that we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus and ask him to come into our heart, to cry out to him that he wouldn't pass us by, but that he would see us and have compassion and give his heart to us so that we can have that new heart. This is such a mess. And then finally, that we would confess that Jesus is Lord because he declares, take courage for it is I. Do not be afraid and do not be afraid to recognize that you need to take a spiritual step, that you need Jesus in your life, that you can't. This is the preaching of a Pelagian. By the way, Pelagianism is a heresy. You can't do it under your own power anymore. That our God is so good and gracious, he wants to give you more than enough. And his grace is, is so big, he wants to pour it out on all of us. So, that yeah, so he wants to give us more than enough. I don't even know what that means. I, I knew, do know that Christ died for my sins and wants me to re be reconciled to God, but you're not telling me about that. that. We would be forgiven and we would have a relationship with God. For some of us, though, it's not about starting the relationship. It's about continuing the relationship. And we've got to lay down the oars and start praying for the wind that God would get behind us. Mm, you lay down the oars and start praying for the wind. Um, not even the disciples were told they needed to do that. And he would drive us and send us where we need to go. That it would be through his power that he would multiply our small efforts using the ordinary to do the extraordinary and to ultimately see our city transformed one life at a time. Let's pray. No. Ugh, what a mess. What a train wreck. <sighs> Folks, I don't know how else to say it except for to say that I review literally in a month hundreds of sermons in preparation for this program i'm sifting through and previewing hundreds of sermons a month and this is a fair representative of what passes as preaching nowadays complete mangling of god's word starting with your own ideas and then trying to shoehorn them into the biblical text when they're not there. Um, all of this supposedly themed on a sermon series that's supposed to be relevant to men. You know, man, I needed that. This is all talking about all the needs that men have. You know, men, they need respect, they need friends, and they need a dream. This, none of these doctrines are taught in Scripture. This isn't what God's Word says. 
So my question is, how is this evangelism? How is this reaching the city of Derby, uh, Kansas, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't clearly preached? It wasn't clearly proclaimed. I mean, it was kind of sort of there in a very fuzzy way as a footnote at the end of this. I don't know what that was, but you understand what I'm saying? Folks, we've got to take evangelism back from the so-called seeker-driven churches. They're not really evangelizing, nor are they discipling the nations and teaching sound biblical doctrine. They are teaching false doctrine. They are, in the name of being relevant and supposedly growing the church, they're not really making disciples. They're twisting God's word, wrongly handling it, and and teaching absurdities and browbeating people to basically conform to their strange doctrines. God gets work done only through communities. He, God's dream team will be perfectly obedient to him. It, this is absurd. God wants you to have a dream. It better not be a small one. It's got to be a big one, because if you could do it, then it's not a God-sized dream. The Bible doesn't teach this. This isn't Christianity. This is not the historic Christian faith. This is something completely different. And what's needed right now are those who know that this is not Christianity to speak, to proclaim the truth, to correct, rebuke, train, teach, and build the body of Christ with sound doctrine, with God's word rightly handled and rightly taught, with evangelism that's done that confronts sinners with their sin and placards Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen as the only solution. Churches where men ascend to the pulpit and model what it means to abide in Christ's word by reverently, rightly handling it and teaching what is really there, not eisegeting it, not reading themselves into it narcissistically, and proclaiming boldly that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, but dying for them. These churches, these seeker-driven churches, all are basically formed with the promise that they, they, they have figured out how to make the church relevant to so-called spiritual seekers. And the only thing that they've accomplished in doing is mangling God's word and making little profit fewers out of their vision-casting pastors who then throw anybody off the bus who dares challenge the vision. This is not Christianity. That's not the pastoral office biblically revealed. This is something completely different. The church needs to repent the church needs to repent and repudiate all of this and do what Christ has called us to do. 
Yeah, the, the, that's the only way forward. The, the way forward is actually by taking a lot of steps backwards and saying the church jumped the tracks. At that point, we've got to get back to that and abandon, abandon this innovation. These innovations are not growing in the body of Christ. They're actually an impediment to evangelism, preaching the gospel, and making disciples who are firmly grounded in God's word. That's the reality of the situation that we face at this time. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, money in there at pirate Christian. Till about a week and a half from now, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.